You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia. She was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest, and her priestesses were transgender. Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change. Atalanta, fleet-footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar, and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion. Eats Papa Lotl, a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives. This episode is part of our Women of Myth series, where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology. It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, Illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard, it's available for pre-order wherever books are sold, or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near you. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McBenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the after party just for Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much for your support. So the leader of the first servile war, Eunice, died in 132 BC. We don't know when he was born, but we do know he was from Syria. And we also know that he was a worshiper of Adar Goddess, the mermaid goddess who inspired a slave rebellion. And when we heard about Adar Goddess and that she was a mermaid goddess, we just felt like we had to dig deeper. While its boundaries have shifted and changed at different points throughout history, Syria was and still is located on the very eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and it was a dynamic and diverse part of the ancient and classical Mediterranean world. Due to its location at the center of several important trade routes, Syria was also a place that was intensely fought over at many points throughout its history. During Eunice's lifetime, Syria was just emerging from a long period of intense, violent war between the Seleucid Empire, an empire that rose up in the aftermath of Alexander the Great's death, and Ptolemaic Egypt, which was trying to seize control in the region. The Syrian Wars, as they were called, lasted from 274 BC to 168 BC. In the aftermath of these wars, the once mighty Seleucid Empire, which had so seized Eunice's imagination that he'd renamed himself after a famous Seleucid general, contracted to the point where it only controlled a few cities in Syria. 
the Romans and Parthians swooped into the power vacuum, and in the process, a lot of ordinary people in Syria were taken into slavery, many to feed the Romans' insatiable latifundia machine. One of those was Eunice, the miracle worker, fire breather, salty birthday party magician extraordinaire, and worshipper of the goddess, Adargoddess. So who was Adargoddess? First and foremost, she was a fish goddess, sometimes represented as half-woman, half-fish. If you read ancient Greek and Roman writers when they talk about Syrians, one thing that comes up is that Syrians didn't eat fish, and I don't know whether all Syrians didn't eat fish or just a certain group of them, or how much of this was a stereotype, and probably a lot of this was a stereotype. Because the sources we're getting this from are Roman sources, so... But I suspect that those who didn't eat fish were probably worshippers of Adar Goddess. In fact, this crops up in the story of Eunice. Apparently, he didn't eat fish, and neither did his followers, who also became followers of Adar Goddess, and there's a story about how they were forced to eat fish during a difficult siege because they were running low on other food. Atar Goddess wasn't just a mermaid goddess. She was also a fertility goddess. Doves as well as fish were sacred to her. She was sometimes depicted as riding on lions, and she was the primary goddess of northern Syria. Like a lot of ancient goddesses, Atar Goddess was associated particularly with a specific place, Hierapolis, northeast of Aleppo but she had cult centers throughout the Mediterranean world. Most scholars believe that the Atar goddess, worshipped during Eunice's time, was a later incarnation of more ancient goddesses such as Asherah, or the Lady Goddess of the Sea. I mean, I love that translation. I do too, it's beautiful. An important Canaanite fertility goddess, Anat, a virgin goddess of war, and Astarte, an ancient goddess of love worshipped by the Akkadians, Phoenicians, and other ancient cultures. These goddesses are attested from as early as 1400 BC. These in turn may have arisen from ancient Hittite deities that were worshipped as early as the 3000s BC. There were periods during Hittite history when they occupied parts of Syria, especially northern Syria, which is the focal point of Atar goddess's cult. Because her goddesshood encompassed so many qualities, ancient Greek and Roman writers associated Atar goddess with both Aphrodite and Hera, as well as Rhea, Athena, Artemis, Selene, and even the Fates. She also had a consort, Hadad, the god of thunder, rain, hurricanes, and storms. The Greeks equated him with Zeus, but he was probably based on ancient Assyrian and Hittite sky gods. There are a number of myths associated with Atar goddess, and we have some sense of how she was worshipped. However, you're going to have to take what we're about to tell you with a grain of salt, and here is why. Get all that beautiful pink Himalayan sea salt, or whatever it is, pink Himalayan rock salt. Get it. Put it into like a salt lamp you can lick. That's what we're talking about here. A boulder of salt. I mean, don't lick too much. It's not good for you. Lick the Dead Sea. Lick it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, much of what we know about how Adar Goddess was worshipped in Syria comes from Lucian of Samosata, who was a writer who lived between 125 and 180 AD. So he was living possibly between 200 and 300 years after Eunice's death. He was a native of the Roman province of Syria, so Syria was not a Roman province when Eunice was alive, but it was by the time Lucian was alive. He grew up in Syria, so he probably was aware of Adar Goddess from an early age and grew up around her, maybe worshipped her, maybe knew a lot of people who did. But here's the thing, he was also a satirist, and he frequently wrote sarcastically about contemporary figures and sacred cows of the time, including religion, and he was writing for a Roman audience. 
I can't say if what he tells us about Adar Goddess is actually true or more like an ancient world version of like the onion or something or possibly it was a mix of both and I'm not a professional scholar, I'm not a historian at all. And you don't have access to professional scholarly articles or databases because we are lay people. That's right. There's a lot that I don't have access to, and I'm sure that there are sources that I haven't seen. And I just want to remind everyone that we can only read in English. My Latin is very basic, so we don't have the ability to read outside of translations into English. Yeah, so we are limited in our scope. My feeling is that Lucian of Samosata may have had a slant, may have been telling some things that either weren't true or were seen through a specific Roman lens or were seen to sort of make fun of the religion a little bit. So um, you do have to take a little bit of this with a grain of salt, and I'm just putting it out there. So one of the things Lucian tells us is that Atargatis had a connection to Dionysus. According to him, her primary temple in Hierapolis was originally erected by Dionysus on his travels, and the temple contained things that Dio had collected on his wanderings. Quote, barbaric raiment. Well, I don't know what that is, but it sounds pretty fabulous. I imagine it is. It is fabulous. It's lit. Elephants' tusks from Ethiopia and precious stones from India, as well as a pair of massive phalli in the vestibule inscribed with the words, I, Dionysus, dedicate these phalli to Hera, my stepmother. And I just, Jenny, <laughs> everything about this fills me with so much joy. Because Dionysus' stepmother, Hera, did not like him. Set him on this sort of ancient world journey. She kept cursing him with madness. And he decides, you know what? I'm just going to give her two of the biggest old dicks I can find. That's right. Giant dongs. <laughs> and she can just sit on them. <laughs> sit on this, Hera. And I will also mention that Lucian refers to Adargatis throughout his book about her as Hera because she was like the main sort of fertility goddess of Syria and Hera was the main fertility goddess of Greece. And he decided that they were the same goddess in this book. Which they're not, but it is highly possible that there is an origin myth where the person we associate with Dionysus comes from an older Syrian god. There's more dongs, though, in the temple. Let's talk about the other dongs in the temple. I mean, I just, I love to talk about a temple full of dongs. Remember, though, I think it's really important to remind people that dongs in ancient classical culture were all about good luck. <laughs> they were good luck charms, so... They were. Anyway, Lucian also describes a small figure made of wood, similar to those dedicated to Dionysus. Quote, Just as you enter, on the right hand, a small brazen statue meets your eye of a man in sitting posture with parts of monstrous size. You know what? I love that part. I like my dramatic reading of that, I have to say. It was very dramatic. <laughs> I, I really I really felt it grabbed me in the guts, Jen. But I really just, I love that one image. It's just like, okay, yeah, there are these giant 60-foot tall dongs in this temple. But also, as you walk in, there's this little alcove, and like, you could miss it. You could walk right by it. But if you happen to glance that way, there's this little statue in there with also a giant dong. Dionysus had the satyrs with the ginormous erections in his retinue. So that's kind of maybe what they're talking about. Yeah, and there definitely was a connection here, at least according to Lucian, between Dionysus and Adargatis. And this is just one of several. So the legendary temple to Adargatis was a sight to behold. Herodotus tells us that it was the oldest temple of Aphrodite in the world because he thinks that Adargatis is Aphrodite. It was surrounded by two high walls, one modern and one unimaginably ancient even to them. 
inside, it was just wall-to-wall gold. Gold everywhere. Jenny would love it. There was a golden ceiling. Oh, so much shiny. I just want to go. Lucian tells us that there was also a distinctive smell. Quote, There falls upon you also a divine fragrance such as is attributed to the region of Arabia, which breathes on you with a refreshing influence as you melt the long steps. And even when you have departed, this fragrance clings to you. Nay, your very raiment retains long that sweet odor, and it will ever remain in your memory. That sounds nice. That sounds really nice. I want the everlasting nice smell from the Temple of Hierapolis. Exactly. It sounds like it smelt nice. There were some big dongs. It was kind of a place to be. Totally the place to be. There's some barbaric raiment in there. I am down. Let's go. The nice smell really is, I think, where you get that Herodotus' feeling that it's related to Aphrodite. Because this beautiful clinging smell that makes you feel like really happy and overwhelmed with like good feels. That's from Lucian, I believe. Sorry, that's what we're Lucian. He was from Syria. If there was like an actual temple of Adargadis in Hierapolis, and there probably was, he probably had gone there. Maybe it just smelled really nice in there. Totally. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Inside the temple were statues of Atargatis and her consort Hadad. The statue of Atargatis was gilded in gold and covered in precious gems. Oh man, magpie alert. (laughs) A great gem shone on her forehead and lit up the whole temple at night with a fiery light. Lucian tells us that no matter where you stood in the temple, the statue's gaze would follow you. That is so cool. I told you you were going to love this. And her gemstone-like stained glass window. Wait, where is the, is there a stained glass window? No, but her gem in the in her forehead lights everything up with this fiery light, kind of like a stained glass window at sunset. 
Oh, I see what you're saying. I was just really confused for a minute. I was like, wait, were there stained glass windows in the temple? I didn't see that. What source are you using? <laughs> no, no, no. I was just saying, like, you could just imagine you're there at night and you've got the candle braziers and you've got this red fiery light following you and the eyes like, ooh. And the dongs. The dongs. The dongs. The corner dong guy. <laughs> Little mini brazen statue of a dong man. So the temple was also chock full of statues of gods. Lucian refers to them as Greek gods, but they were probably local gods that he was equating with the Greek pantheon, as well as famous heroes and priests. In the courtyard outside the temple, sacred oxen and horses grazed alongside tame lions, bears, and eagles. Lions hanging out with lambs, and they're all tame. Like, that's definitely, like, a god thing. Well, again, it makes me think about Dionysus and that overlap, because we talked about how donkeys were sort of sacred to Dionysus, but his other animals were, like, bulls and lions and panthers. And you know that donkey hanging out with, like, a lion panther is going to get eaten. But not if Dionysus is there. So... According to Lucian, there was a sacred lake on the temple grounds. It was 200 fathoms deep, which was about 1,200 feet deep. And in the center was a great stone altar, standing on a massive column that reached all the way down to the bottom of the lake. There were sacred ceremonies at this lake every day, where the statues of Adar Goddess and Hadad were brought to the shore, and worshippers swam out to the altar to perform rituals. The fish in the lake were sacred to Adar Goddess, and they were tame. They grew to an immense size, had names, and they came when called. And they were very friendly. And they would sometimes swim up close for cuddles and pets like you do because they were super cute little fishies. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Some of the fish were adorned with gold. And Lucian swears up and down that one of them had a jewel embedded in its fin. Nobody was allowed to eat or harm the fish because why would you do that? You're a terrible person. Sit down. Go away. That's how I feel about people who are going to hurt the fish and add our goddess's sacred lake. I mean, I also agree. They're just so friendly. Be nice to them and pet them. They're so friendly and defenseless. Like, just don't eat the sacred fish. Don't eat the sacred fish. Can we just draw that line? Thank you. Don't be an asshole and eat the sacred fish, okay? Correct. Lucian <laughs> includes several stories about how the legendary temple in Hierapolis came to be constructed. And we're going to give you one of the most important ways. I'm just going to go out on the limb and predict that you are going to hate this story, Jen. Oh, I'm going to have so much rage that, in fact, before I start this story, I need to refill my wine glass. I'll be right back, kids. All right. All right, in case you're wondering, the wine cup has been refilled. And I'm going to tell you a story that's going to piss me off. So here we go. This story about the building of the temple concerns Stratonice, queen of the Seleucid Empire. She was a real person, although this story is very mythical and comes from Lucian. Her first husband was Seleucius I, the empire's founder, and this story takes place during her marriage to him, sometime between 300 and 294 BC. So, according to the story, Stratonice had visions of Atargatis, demanding that she build her a temple in Hierapolis on pain of fearsome punishment if she disobeyed. At first, Stratonice ignored the dream. But later, Stratonice got sick and, thinking it was punishment from the goddess, begged her husband to allow her to go to Hierapolis to build that temple. 
Seleucus I could deny his wife nothing. He sent her to Hierapolis with money and a small army of workers and engineers. He asked a friend of his, Combabus, to travel with Stratonice, ensure her safety, and oversee the temple's construction. You know, be her right-hand guy. Like, do her a solid. You can do that. Right, Combabus? Right? Well, I'm guessing no, because this is going to make me so ragey. Combabus was stricken with anxiety at this request. This was a big job, far bigger than he'd ever performed before. The thought of managing all those funds, all those workers, all those blueprints, it totally overwhelmed him. It's just a lot of work. He's got imposter syndrome. And you know what? For that, I feel like, I feel you, Combabus. I'm with you. I get it. You need to take a deep breath. You need to make some lists and it's going to be okay. But that wasn't his biggest fear, Jen. His biggest fear was that he'd be working closely with Stratonice, who happened to be a woman with a vagina. Oh, no. Vaginas. Vaginas are the devil. What happens if she just trips and falls on his dick? Because here's the thing. Combabus is clearly irresistible and women can't help throwing themselves at him. Like it's not his fault. The king is going to be so mad if it happens that Combabus trips his dick just happens to go in her vagina by accident. Oh no. Or even worse, like on this side, what if he's just a rapey asshole who's just like, she's really fucking hot. It's going to get really hot building the temple. I just can't help myself. He catches a glimpse of her ankle and he just completely loses himself. My problem I have is that one way he just can't help assaulting her because he's the fucking worst. And the other way is like, oh, she's just going to fall in love with me because I'm so attractive and I just can't help it. And then yet another way, it's just like, oh, but what if she trips and falls on my dick several times and gets pregnant? Or what if she trips and her face falls on my dick and I enjoy it? I mean, I just, or what if I trip and fall and my face falls under her vagina? I just don't know what I'm doing here. So Combobus is really working himself up into a lather right now. He's going to be in so much trouble. So much trouble because maybe the reality is Combobus has a big old crush on her. I think Combobus needs to fucking chill. He needs to learn control like everyone else. But this was the king's request and you can't just say no to the king's request. So Combobus begged to just have seven days to handle some stuff before he set out and the king agreed and Combobus went home and had a full on anxiety attack like we've said. Well, I don't know if it was an anxiety attack. He had a full-on just like... He's freaking out about how Stratonice has a vagina. And apparently his attraction to her and what he's gonna do with that vagina if he's left unchecked. Like, oh my god. Furious masturbation session. <laughs> thinking about Stratonice <laughs> tripping and falling on his penis. <laughs> Quote from Lucian. Lucian has something to say. Here's what Combobus's inner monologue was during this time. Throwing himself on the ground, he thus deplored his lot. Unhappy me. Why this confidence in myself? To what end is this journey, whose results I already see? I am young, and the lady whom I escort is fair. This will prove a great and mighty disaster, unless I remove entirely the cause of the evil. Thus, I must even perform a mighty deed which will heal all of my fears. Then, Combobus whipped out a sharp implement castrated himself and put his severed bits in a box which he gave to the king for safe keeping you know actually jen <laughs> you know what i'm gonna say right now right i like that kambabas took himself out of the equation and was like you know what i'm gonna handle my shit i feel like i can't handle being alone with this woman i really 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 like her and i'm gonna fuck up so you know what i'm just gonna handle my shit 
He didn't put it on Stratonice. He didn't say, oh, Stratonice has to stay home. She can't participate in her own project. He just made it not her problem. Kambabis took agency. He did not put his issues on this woman. No one's going to trip and accidentally fall on your dick. Like, we are not going to do that. Like, women are very adept at being in the male world without just immediately seeing a good looking guy and decide they're going to fall on your dick and ruin your life. They're just not going to do that. Honestly, like the fact that Kambabis is just handling it himself is quite refreshing to me and it delights me. You really experience that societal pressure that is very different on women than it is on men. And some of us, it's I can't be alone in a room with you because you're so sexy. Others of us, it's you must control the way that you present your body because if you don't, people won't be able to stop themselves from looking at you or whatever. And it's like, I'm sorry, this should not be the way we live our lives. We should live our lives so that everyone takes the responsibility for their own actions. It's so insistent that this is a woman's problem to handle. Mental bandwidth is a thing. Women should have that part of our mind given over to how we dress, freed up to concentrate on other things. But it's just like one more mental burden placed on women. Actually, though, this is really just my body. And could people just get over it so I don't have to constantly police myself? So let's get back to Kambabas, who has now castrated himself. Right. Kambabas is now sans reproductive organs. Yes, he has taken agency. He said, this is how I'm going to solve the problem of Stratonice. He has not burdened Stratonice with his issues, which is really refreshing and we love it. So Kambabas, after taking seven days to recover from his self-castration, which I side-eye how long that would take. It's a ritual number in the religion of Adargatis. Well, it's a ritual number in Christianity and Judaism. That's how long it took to create the world. There's lots of sevens repeat in lots of different places. I'm sure it's in other places that I can't think of right now because I had to finish the wine to get through this. So after he's recovered, he traveled to Hierapolis and helped Stratonice build her temple to Atargatis. The process took about three years. And during that time, the two got close. And just as Kambabas feared, Stratonice fell passionately, wildly in love with him. And one night after getting thoroughly drunk on the good Falernian wine. Maybe the blackout mead. We don't know. The sources don't say. Maybe Dionysus's finest private blend. <laughs> oh my God, I want some of that. Guys, if I could ever afford a vineyard, I would call it Dionysus's finest private blend. It'll make you prophesy. Anyway, Stratonese finally confessed her feelings and threw herself a Kambabas. And Kambabas rejected Stratonese because, you know, he didn't have much to work with there. And also, this is the king's wife. This would be a terrible idea. And Stratonese was so offended that she wrote to her husband, accusing Kambabas of trying to force himself on her. And Seleucus I summoned Kambabas back at once and threw him in prison. After a few days of listening to informers who brought him salacious descriptions of Kambabas getting it on with his wife, Seleucus hauled Kambabas out and made him stand before the whole court while he accused him of the most vile crimes of lust. After much haranguing, the king sentenced Kambabas to death. Kambabas stayed silent throughout the entire diatribe, but just as he was being led away, he spoke up, claiming that the king wasn't having him executed for these so-called lustful crimes that he was accusing him of, but because the king wanted what was in that box he'd left in his safekeeping all that time ago, a box that contained his greatest treasure. Nonsense! thundered Seleucus. He had the box brought forth, and Kambabas opened it for him. And there, nestled in a bed of fragrant herbs, were his withered, severed bits. I mean, why didn't he just drop trow at the beginning of this whole process? That's my question. 
I mean, that is what I would do because I am such a Leo. I'd be like, right, let's just get this over with. Boom. But you know, for Lucian and Combobus, it's like, this is Chekhov's gun. I put it out in the first act. I got to bring it out in the third act. If you're putting your bits in a box in the first act, that means someone has to open the box in a very dramatic fashion, preferably in a courtroom in the third act. That's how Chekhov works. But what kills me is, like, the king never just thought, like, hey, I'm just going to see what this treasure is in this box. No, he never wanted to look at Combobus' greatest treasure. (laughs) I would have been like, let me, oh, that is not shiny. No, no. (laughs) No, don't want to look at that. I regret my whole life. I regret everything. (laughs) I regret all my life, all my choices. Question your life. Question your choices. Put the box back. Pretend you didn't see it. I need the private blend. Help. Anyway, so obviously, Combobus couldn't have committed the crimes he stood accused of. The king was amazed and very contrite. He showered Combobus with gifts, praise, and apologies. He's so sorry. Seleucius I is so sorry. He put to death all the people who had lied to him about the very, very naughty things Combobus was allegedly doing with his wife, and then sent him back to finish the temple. Combobus stayed at the temple and lived there. He became a priest of Otargatis because he was no longer considered, quote, fully a man because of his self-castration and just... I. That's a quote from Lucian. That's a quote from Lucian. We don't agree with that. Obviously, there's a whole thing about, like, what being a man is and what masculinity entails and whether it's tied to whether or not you have a ball sack. If you're having those thoughts, we are also having those thoughts. But that's what's in the story. Exactly. That's what we're telling you. The ancient sources are awful. Kimbabas started wearing women's clothing. And that's why, kids, forever afterwards, the priests of Artagatis dressed in women's clothes and castrated themselves, according to Lucian. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation, we hope, but that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake, and if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk? And can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So the reason I included this story, even though it deserves like a lot of side eye and maybe the entire Dead Sea's worth of salt, is because it sets the stage for two key things about the religion of Adar Goddess. Number one, that her priests were gender fluid, which is something that comes across in other sources as well. And number two, they were said to engage in self-mutilation, specifically self-castration. So the priests of Adar Goddess were called the Galai, and Lucian describes them as inhumanly beautiful as well as gender fluid. Women supposedly went mad over them. And there's this other myth where a woman falls violently in love with a Galai and is so upset to find that he's a eunuch that she commits suicide. I mean... Just stop for a minute there. There are things you can do that don't require a dong. Oh, absolutely. It's not a deal breaker. There's a plethora of synthetic dongs in the ancient world. If you need that, you can still get it. And number two, there are a lot of other things you can do. Like, chill. Mm-hmm. 
but apparently not. So Lucian tells us, quote, they certainly castrate themselves and then cease to wear men's garb. They don women's raiment and perform women's tasks. And um, that's from Lucian, and it definitely points towards a, a tradition of gender fluidity in this religion, which I find really interesting because Dionysus also had that. We didn't have myths of, like, self-castration in Dionysus's religion, but the gender fluidity, absolutely. Yeah, and this is how the castration went down. According to Lucian, we also had this quote. I think this is the same quote. as We just included more of it in this one, but it's also in Servile Wars Part 1. Quote, on certain days, a multitude flocks into the temple, and the Galli, in great numbers, sacred as they are, perform the ceremonies of the men and gash their arms and turn their backs to be lashed. Many bystanders play on the pipes, the while many beat drums. Others sing divine and sacred songs. During these days, they are made Galli. The Galli sing and celebrate their orgies. Frenzy falls on many of them, and many who had come as mere spectators afterwards are found to have committed the great act. So, just to unpack a little bit, what Lucian is describing is a religion where they have this really intense ritual that involves music and dancing and you go into a frenzy and bystanders are pulled in and there's pipes and drums. That all sounds really Dionysian. What this really makes me think of is going back to the Dionysus stuff we did is that uniform one heartbeat beating as one, you know, everyone is together, that catharsis, which you see here again in Artagatis. And that to me is like this great melding. One of the reasons I loved the research I eventually did into Dionysus is how many things meld together. Catharsis is like an emotional joining of many. We explored that in our last Dionysus episode and we talked about how when watching theater, they've done tests in modern times where people's heartbeats in a modern theater will kind of converge and they'll have the same heartbeat at different emotional points in the show that everybody's watching. And that's like, that's really Dionysian. That's what the ritual was set to create in people was this oneness, this intensity of experience, like these super intense rituals that involve frenzies strike me as doing the same thing. It must have been incredible. You could see how you'd be swept into this passion. Tell us what happened next in this passionate ritual, Jen. So any young man who has resolved on this action strips off his clothes and with a loud shout bursts into the midst of the crowd and picks up a sword from a number of swords, which I suppose have been kept ready for many years for this purpose. I hope they're sharp. He takes it and castrates himself and then runs wild through the city, bearing in his hands what he has cut off. He casts it into any house at will. And from this house, he receives women's raiment and ornaments. Thus, they act during their ceremonies of castration. And that was the end of the quote from Lucian. I have so many thoughts. I mean, just the running. I just... Right, the running alone. Like Maybe it's because I'm in my 30s. I'm just like, that feels like so much work. <laughs> I didn't do a whole deep dive into castration cults because it's a really big, complex topic and it's not really my area of expertise. So I can't really speak with authority on like how that worked. But I do know that there were religious cults in operation probably around this time, probably older than this, that included castration as part of their ritual structure. It's not that out there to say that a religion from Syria had this element of castration to it. Like there are other religions, specifically religions from India, and it probably could have like migrated to this area, especially if we're talking about a connection with Dionysus, who was a traveler god, that that could have been transmitted to this area. But I feel like if they were castrating themselves, there had to have been like a really precise way of doing it so people didn't die. Because this was not like a, this isn't something you can just do. Like it, it can be fatal if you do it wrong. 
Okay, so my supposition, complete supposition, is they would have tied off the area as you do with a tourniquet. It would have immediately been cauterized probably by a priest of Artigatus. And then they would have run through the streets on a fucking adrenaline high, maybe on some substance, and then collapsed. We're just kind of speculating how this could have actually gone here. Yeah. We're also seeing like a clear gender fluidity thing going on here. And this is so telling. At our goddess as a goddess of revolution in the Roman world, like it all starts with gender fluidity, doesn't it, Jen? Yeah, because that is one of the things that in a strict patriarchy that brings you terror. That brings the ruling classes terror. That's who the you is in that sentence. Yeah, it brings them terror because they can't put you into a box. They can't figure you out. And if they can't figure you out, they can't control you. These are very clear divisions, women versus men. And nobody can be both. Nobody can be neither. Nobody can move between one or the other categories. We know who a man is and who a woman is, and they all have the same traits. And the traits of women justify oppression. That gives the men control over offspring and inheritance and stuff like that. And that's why the oppression was so powerful. And that's why gender fluidity threatened the very heart of patriarchy, because it threatened an entire society built around that. We are living in a patriarchal society even now, the effects of which have been felt for 2,000, 3,000 years. And if you are trans, gender fluid, gender non-binary, you are bucking the weight of all of that time. No one should ever be made to feel less or other. You are who you are. And anyone who has a fucking problem with that can take it outside. Everyone who has a problem with that can go self-castrate and keep their mouths shut. And keep their mouths shut. And if you don't want to, go fuck yourself. I've got a giant dong at the Temple of Hierapolis for you. There's a giant dong at the Temple of Hierapolis with your fucking name on it. Sit and rotate. Sit and rotate. Get some fucking guidance. Thank you, Jen. So, um, anyway... They were said to be 30 fathoms high, Jen, by the way. How big is a fathom? Like, I, you know I'm terrible with spatial shit. All right, so I'm really glad you asked, as a matter of fact. When you see the word fathom in an ancient world translation of something that might be Greek and Roman, what they're probably talking about is the um, ancient Greek unit of measurement, which is known as the orgoia. I'm probably mispronouncing that. But um, it was a unit of measurement that was approximately six feet. And I think a modern fathom is also six feet, so not that different. But the reason they're using the word fathom is because this is how this one unit of measurement is usually translated. So if you take 30 fathoms and multiply that by six, you get 180 feet. So according to Lucian, these dongs were 180 feet high. That is like seriously tall. These giant dongs, people climbed up onto the top of them using a chain looped around the phallus to climb up like you might climb a palm tree. Once up there, the worshippers stayed up there for seven days. Note the seven days. It's a ritual period of time. Not sleeping, communing with Adar Goddess and Dionysus. Lucian tells us that the worshippers stayed awake not so much due to religious ecstasy as fear of falling. I have to be honest with you. That would be my fear. I'd be like, what if I just fall off? Like, how do you even hang on to that big of a dong. That just tells me that the dongs had the, you know, length, but not the width. You can't lie down up there. But also you wouldn't be alone. Like there'd be a lot of people on that dong. Do they do it one at a time or I don't know. You know what Lucian doesn't say? Lucian's not interested in the facts we need to know. That's right. He's not interested in our urgent questions. Lucian also tells us of ceremonies where worshippers threw sacrifices down the temple steps to their death. Apparently the steps were very steep. Usually this was animals, but... Sometimes people would throw their own children down sewn into sacks. 
I suspect that that is a Lucian satirist thing that he's saying. I think so too. The religion of Atargatis took root in Syria and the Near East, traveled to ancient Greece, and from there spread up the boot of Italy from the south, brought mostly by enslaved people from Syria. The Romans had their own name for Atargatis, Dea Syria. Wandering priests of Atargatis would travel the Roman roads in small groups, bringing statues of their goddess along on the backs of donkeys and telling fortunes for a living. They were looked on with mistrust by polite society. Apuleius talks about priests of Atargatis in The Golden Ass. The Golden Ass is the only ancient Roman novel to come down to us completely today. Some priests of Atargatis make an appearance there, and I think the way that the priests are portrayed speaks to how the Romans saw them and their religion in this time period. And I'm just going to warn you, this is where we get into like the othering, transphobic, homophobic shit. Because Apuleius is a fucking trash fire. So, The Golden Ass was written by Apuleius. It dates to the 2nd century AD, and it's about a man named Lucius who's transformed into a donkey, and hilarity, I guess, ensues. And so at one point in the novel, Lucius, in donkey form, is he's been transformed into a donkey. He's sold to a priest of Atargatis. The priest brings Lucius home to his fellow priest friends who are described as men in women's clothes with long hair, feminine voices, and makeup. Look, their eyeliner was fierce, and maybe Apuleius was a little jealous. And also, we don't know, like, how much of that was traditional to what they wore and why they wore it and how it was sacred, because Apuleius is not interested in that. He's just interested in being a jerk. Yeah. So Lucius the donkey is led from place to place, carrying the statue of the goddess Artagatis on his back. While the priests get up to various hijinks, including faking prophecies for alms, sexually assaulting young men, and generally swindling people. So I'm going to read you a passage from The Golden Ass. Quote, in one village, the priests enjoyed a particularly lavish hall and decided to celebrate with a banquet. As the price for a fake oracle, meaning the priests had faked prophecies for alms, they got a fat ram from one of the farmers, which was to be sacrificed to appease the hungry goddess. Having made all the arrangements for dinner, they went off to the baths, whence having bathed, they brought back with them to share their dinner a robust young peasant, finely equipped in loin and groin. So not just loin, not just groin, but loin and groin, Jen. Both. Swoon. Dinner was hardly begun, when, and they'd scarcely started on the hors d'oeuvres when the filthy scum, God, can we just, like, eye roll for a minute? I think he's referring to the priest here. I can't get my eyes from the back of my head yet again. Became inflamed by their unspeakable lusts to outrageous lengths of unnatural depravity. The young man was stripped and laid on his back, and crowding around him, they made repeated demands on his services with their loathsome mouths. Okay, so like, I feel like, I don't know if this was all consensual or not, because the ancient sources are shitty with consent, and they don't think it's even a thing we should note, but... I kind of like the idea of this, like, well-equipped loin and groin man just decided to go home with some sexy femme priests and have himself an orgy. Maybe. I mean, the donkey's being real judgy. The donkey's being super judgy right now. This is the rest of Apuleius's quote. This is not my words. This is what the donkey was thinking. His inner monologue is he's a judgy ass. <laughs> Literally. Quote, Finally, I couldn't stand the sight and tried to shout, Romans to the rescue! But the letters and syllables failed me, and all that came out was an O. Oh. <laughs> A good loud one, credible to an ass, but the timing was unfortunate. This fucking judgy donkey <laughs> busting up your orgy. Apparently, he sounds like he's not enjoying the orgy. We're sorry for inflicting all this on you. We question our life. We question our choices. Let me, let me finish this quote. <laughs> 
So, quote, it so happened that some young men from the next village were looking for an ass that had been stolen that night and were conducting a thorough search of all the lodging houses. Coincidence. I think not. Hearing me braying inside and believing that their quarry was hidden away there, they burst in unexpectedly to reclaim their property and caught our friends red-handed in their vile obscenities. I mean, you ruined an orgy donkey. Orgy fail. If you're going to buy a donkey, make sure he's just not judgy like this. And also, treat your donkey nicely. Don't leave him inside to watch an orgy that he's uncomfortable with. Like, be good to your donkey. Your donkey is a being that deserves love and comfort, but not that kind of love. He's not involved in the orgy. I've said this many times now. Right. There's no reason to have a donkey at your orgy. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, when we thought we were going to launch a podcast, this was never like something I thought I would say. There's no reason to have a donkey at an orgy. This is not how I thought my life was going to go. This is where we are right now. But here's where we are. Apuleius was Numidian, which was part of the Roman Empire during his lifetime from 124 to 170 AD, and he wrote in Latin. So his characterization of the priests of Adargatis betrays what were probably common prejudices about them in the empire at the time. In Syria, Adargatis might have been the most powerful goddess in the land, but in Rome, hers was a religion of enslaved people and wanderers, and it was derided as such. But it was also a dangerously subversive religion. You can see the connection here between Atargatis and Dionysus. Like the worship of Dionysus, the religion of Atargatis was one of underdogs, a religion of music, dancing, and wild holy frenzies, a religion not to be trusted by the establishment. Priests of both were seen as swindlers, and it was a religion that subverted gender norms, striking at the heart of the Greek and Roman patriarchy. Perhaps it's no surprise then that the religion of Adargatis fueled the largest and most widespread slave revolt in Roman history. That's a story we told in our main episode on the First Servile War, and we'll tell you the second half of that story on the Second Servile War next week. Thank you so much for your support, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you. 